as we finish this series called Pursuit, um, we're talking about marriage, dating, sex, you know, kind of the idea of, of pursuing one another in relationship, but we actually are thinking through just what are we pursuing in life, right? So we started, I started it a few weeks ago with this question, what are you pursuing? And if you Google search this or DuckDuckGo or any search engine you use, you can find a, a, a pretty broad list of what people are searching for or aspiring for or shooting for. And here's an example of just the top things I saw. Happiness, right? Everybody's kind of looking for that. Money and freedom and the freedom that comes with money and so forth and so on. Passion, a passionate life, you know. That could be in romance. That could be in just in your own emotions. Peace and security um, and satisfaction and fulfillment, right? This is some of the things that people are really aiming for, shooting for in life. And so, and there's nothing wrong with these things in and by themselves. But the reality is, is you know this is true, a lot of us approach relationships with the idea that the relationships we have in life are going to satisfy these, are going to bring these, right? And that's a lot of pressure to put on relationships that your relationships are what's going to bring you happiness. You know, your relationships are going to be what satisfy you. Your relationships are going to bring the are going to have all the passion you've you ever wanted and needed. Like it's a lot of things to put on relationships to fulfill the things that we quote unquote are pursuing. And so we basically said, let's let's ask the question in this series, what does God actually want us to pursue? What does God actually want us to pursue? And this is where we had our theme verse. Um, because we believe God has a plan for this for us. And hopefully you've been you know, kind of putting this to memory as we've been looking at it every single week. But I want us to read it out loud uh, together today since this is the last Sunday of this series. Let's read this verse together out loud. You ready? Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Let's read it one more time out loud. Everybody read together. You ready? Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Big words there are seek, obviously pursue, you know, desire, kind of like put above all else, seek first the kingdom of God. This picture of the top of the list is going to be him. It's going to be his kingdom. It's going to be what he wants, and he's going to bring everything you need in terms of what he, he wants for you and what he needs for you, not necessarily the desires of your heart. We'll talk a little bit about that today uh, and how that kind of works, but um, this, is the, this is kind of the plan, and we talked first week about general, general relationships, especially when it moves into romantic relationships, how we kind of move in progression, make decisions, and where we're headed. So we gave you this kind of, not formula, but just this idea that decisions matter, and the decisions we make uh, kind of determine the direction we're headed, kind of the compass, you know, if you will, and the direction we're headed oftentimes determines the destination. And don't think destination as an outcome, because this isn't a formula to try to get the things you want or outcomes you desire. The destination is, what are you really shooting for? What's the destination? You know, that's why the direction matters. It's, what are you really aiming at in the fulfillment? If you got everything you wanted, what would that actually uh, look like? And so that's what we're talking about when we say uh, destination. So the first week we talked about, you know, you know, friendships and Christ-centered relationships and how that moves across into commitment and then eventually into a covenant, which then was supposed to result in intimacy. And so we talked about how we get some of those things out of order. That was back week one. Last week, Pastor Chris talked about relationships in marriage. He talked specifically about, you know, the fact that marriage is something that God created. And so one of the things we talk about is that if God created it, he alone gets to define it. 
right? If he creates it, he alone gets to define it. And so he talked a lot about what pursuit of, of, of the kingdom of God, pursuing God in our marriage looks like, and it looks like the way God described it, which is oneness. It's, it's the oneness that God alone can give to people that come together and grow not only closer together, but closer, closer to God as they seek to be one. This week, I want to talk about a little bit of a different angle about why it is that we have so many issues in relationships. Why do we see so many relationships fail? Why do we have so many dysfunctional relationships? Why do we see you know, as much divorce uh, that we see in terms of marriage? What are, what are some of the root causes and root reasons uh, that we see some of the issues in our relationships? And we just decided to call this week misdirected pursuits, right? Misdirected pursuits. That, that, that you're pursuing some things and it's, you're misguided, you're misdirected. It's not, there's lots of things that can kind of uh, take us away and our focus away from God, but that's the idea, misdirected pursuits that takes God off the top of that list, you know, seeking him and his kingdom above all else and seeking something else instead. I'm going to give you this verse. We're going to start with this verse. You'll see it, you'll see it on your scripture card uh, that's in the back of the seats or on the seat in front of you. Um, we're going to start with James 4 uh, and then end with James 4. So it's going to be kind of a opening and closing bookcase uh, or bookmarks of the, of, the, of the series, or at least this message today, we're going to start with James 4, 2, and I want you to see what James says, because this is in context to the church and to followers of Christ, but those who are communicating with God or praying about God in terms of how they live their lives, and he goes on to say this, you don't necessarily have what you want, oh, I'll go back, what you want because you don't ask God for it. This is basically James saying, look, you know, you're living your life and going along, and you're not really experiencing some of the things you want to experience. And part of it is because you don't even think to ask God for it. You're just doing it all in your own strength, in your own, you know, will, and your own fruition. Like, that's you. And then he says, but uh, even when you do ask God for it, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You know, you don't, you don't really receive those things. Why? Because your motives are screwed up. You know, the, the pecking order is wrong in terms of what you have on the top of the list. Matter of fact, it goes on to say, you only want what will give you pleasure. You, you only want something for you because it's all about you. And then it goes on to say, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? And then he says, I'll say it again, which is interesting because he's writing this down too. Like, I'll say it again just to kind of emphasize it. If you want to be a friend of the world, you're going to make yourself an enemy of God. Keep going. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? This is basically James' way of saying, you think God was just suggesting things to you? You think that God's way and God's plan and his ideals and instructions are just options? He's like, like you're, you're drawn to the world, and yet when you get drawn to the world, you, you are now at odds with God. Don't you think the scriptures mean what they say? And it says that God is passionate that the spirit he placed in you, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit here, he's talking about the human spirit, the spirit he created you with. He wants that spirit within us to be faithful to him. Like that's the, the, everything that God has kind of put in place, he has created even in us in terms of our human spirit, the life of, you know, the spirit is the life in terms of our body. He, he's like that spirit, he wants it to be faithful to him. He wants it to follow his ideals and instructions. 
So what we see, and I'm, I'm just giving you these handles to make it a little bit clearer today, just so you can kind of understand where we're going to head in terms of, of this series or this uh, message in the series, is that misdirected pursuits, how do we cl- uh, categorize this? Well, according to what James just said, what you'll find oftentimes in misdirected pursuits is you will have biblical conflict, meaning that there's going to be a biblical conflict with the things you're pursuing and the way in which you're going about it, all right? Like there's going to be a conflict in the fact that it either, not only does it not support it, because a lot of people will be like, well, you know, if the Bible supports it, listen, anybody with a half a brain in Google can find one obscure verse in the Bible to do pretty much anything I want to do, okay? So that's that's, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that by the Bible as a whole, the Spirit of God as a whole, it, there's going to be a conflict in what you're pursuing or why you're pursuing it, direction and destination, but you'll also sometimes notice that it has cultural approval, that it seems very normative, that it's very normal in our culture to feel this way or think this way or do this or, or pursue this. Does that make sense? So here we are looking at James's words, this friend of the world or, or enemy of God, and neither one of us would, none, most people would say, well, we're not trying to be either one of those things. We don't be an enemy of God, but I don't want to be a friend of the world. But we need to understand the way in which the decisions we make and the direction we're pursuing, oftentimes we're going to have these misdirected pursuits that take us where it's not God and his kingdom first and foremost. We find out later on that it's actually us. Okay, now there's lots of Lots of ways we could go with misdirected pursuits. Just understand that there's lots to talk about. We're only going to focus in on what affects relationships the most. Okay, everybody with me? We're just going to talk about what, what seems to affect relationships the most in terms of what, what we've seen normal in our culture, and that is when we pursue self-worth and self-indulgence over God's ideals and instructions. The breakdown of marriages, of relationships, the, the dysfunction, the consequences, the issues in our culture in terms of relating with one another, and then close in terms of marriage, a lot of these things can point back to a misdirected pursuit where we are pursuing self-worth in some degree and form or some sort of self-indulgence, which is an easy way of saying self, us, me, Right? So let me give you a couple of lists. And again, we're gonna, this is a lot of information. I, I want to give you, that's why we give you the scripture cards to look at, but it's a lot of information to pour over. So let me just walk through this first set pretty quickly. Because a lot of this has to do with how we measure our worth and our identity. And I, I basically termed it a sin, a, a sin identity or an identity of sin because anytime we sort of give worth and value to something other than God, it is a sin. And when we're striving for our worth, self-worth, and self-value and all that, ahead of God, we, we sort of enter this zone of identity sin, and there's a lot of things that we see that come, away, come out from that. A lot of things in which, again, destination, a lot of ways in which it's playing itself out in our relationships and in the world. Let me just go through this list very quickly. Anxiety and depression are two things that most people would identify as mental illness, and don't take away from the fact that there are you know, organs that don't work and 
chemical imbalances that happen, and there's things that, you know, we've sort of recognized through science that do happen in terms of uh, helping kind of cause anxiety or depression. But for most people, the term anxiety depression comes with an external force or an external circumstance idea that there are things that make me anxious or there are things that depress me. Is that with me? It's, it's very, it seems to be more circumstantial. The problem is, is that it goes from this very quickly into a place of identity, into a place of, well, I'm an anxious person. You know, my, I have an anxious kid. Uh, you know, uh, we deal with depression. You know, there's depression in our family. So we, we look at this and say that there's a lot of psychological studies that say there's a lot more that, that's at stake here and a lot more to do with your predisposition and the predecisions you've made and the way that you've been nurtured that have a lot to do with how you see you that affects anxiety and depression. All right, again, not, not taking out the, the bigger pictures of chemical imbalances, but Really, when the Bible talks about these things, it tells us not to be anxious, right? It tells us to bring everything to the Lord in prayer. Like, there's a biblical conflict with us just trying to say, well, I'm an anxious person. That doesn't make any sense. There's a biblical conflict with that statement. So that has a lot to do with our self-worth and self-value. Same with prejudice. I'm using that in the broadest term possible. Prejudice and racism. Okay? Now, racism, we all know racism from the standpoint of what racism means because it shows up in that, but it's still a form and a root of prejudice. And prejudice can be anything that puts you above someone else. Okay? It's, it's the obsession with class, power, position, uh, truth. It's the obsession with self in terms of your class, your power, your socioeconomic standing, all these things. It could be your politics, that in order to lift one up, you have to drag one down. Does that make sense? So prejudice and racism come from that same root of self-obsession of where you stand in the mix of these things or where your group stands in the mix of these things, which leads to condemnation, judgment, abuse, and injustice. And again, you're going to find biblical conflict with both of those things, with racism, with the broad idea of, of being prejudice. Expressive individualism, this is a big cultural trend right now. A lot of things can be kind of underlying in the expressive individualism, but it's the, it's the journey of, uh, from, you know, from Plato to, to Freud to Marxism to those things where it's this idea that, you know, I think, therefore I am, I feel, therefore I am, this is now what's true because I feel that it's true, and, you know, we're seeing this kind of play out on a big scale in our country and in our, in our society. But this idea of, individual exp of expressive individualism comes from the fact that, that the relativism of my truth places, consist places me consistently at the top of the list that above all, all things... Truth lies with how I feel and what I think. Is everybody with me on that? That's expressive individualism. It's like how I express this and what this means to me has everything to do with self-worth, self-value, and the truth kind of lies with me, so to speak. Um, affairs. You're going to notice I, I kind of split some stuff up. Affairs, when I say affairs, I don't just mean adultery or infidelity. I'm talking specifically about affairs of the heart. You know, um, it's, it, affairs in their nature sort of act as something that, that kind of feeds self-worth and self, um, 
insecurity and value. And, and so affairs oftentimes happen because it's the same spirit of idolatry. Like, like I, I, I don't feel very important, so I have to continue to find people and ways and things to feed that self-worth. And I will go outside of the relationships that maybe I have in order to do that. And it's the same, listen, it's the same spirit of idolatry, right? It's the same spirit of idolatry. The spirit of idolatry is that, well, God's not really doing it for me. So I need to place other things in higher value and higher, higher worth than God. And the same thing can be true in terms of even just affairs of the heart. Guys, you know, I hate to say it, but golf can be an affair of the heart. You all with me? Moms, children can be an affair of the heart. Okay? I mean, like, there are ways in which we can just place things and value on things that really are more of a mere reflection of the value we're looking for, that we place ourselves at versus maybe what God has for us. And then I have on here gender dysphoria and identity. That's, that's again, a little bit different. We're going to talk a little bit about homosexuality and things like that in a second. But gender, the actual just gender dysphoria or, or identity is, again, that idea that psychology and emotional state of being sort of trumps everything else, right? It trumps biology. It trumps everything else. That, you're, that what you think and how you feel should sort of be the trump card on everything else because, again, because you are at the top of the list and that's all that matters. Your self-worth, your self-value, and your identity are, are there. And so I say all that to say God's ideals and instructions, you need to kind of understand that we don't simply view these things as a list of do's and don'ts in Scripture. We list them as an idea that, okay, God has said to seek Him above all things, and what that looks like is everything in our life sort of now comes under him. And in light of him, I'm able to experience, you know, the, the, the things he has for me in life. Again, I understand the fact that it doesn't mean that you're not worth anything. You know, it, it, like we're not trying to say you don't have value, but we're trying to say that when you put God at the top of that list, then your value comes from him, right? Not from anything else. Your value and worth comes from him and in light of, uh, of him. Right? It's not because you're not a unique individual. We teach in growth track about personality tests and you know, all the introvert and extrovert and things like that. Like You are unique to God. Like You are a unique individual thumbprint expression of who God made you to be. Right? He doesn't want robots all the same. Like He wants this uniqueness. But our uniqueness, our individualism needs to come in light of Him, in light of who He, who he says we are not who just we say we are. Matter of fact, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, who's kind of known as the father of existentialism, and I know that's weird to bring up in a sermon, but, you know, talk about a guy who lived in this world of like, you know, I think, therefore I am, and all that kind of thing, but yet Soren Kierkegaard actually, most of what he wrote had, he brought everything under the light of who he was in terms of who God was. And so when you read some of his statements, like one of his most famous quotes is that, okay, now with God's help, I can become myself, right? Now with God's help, I can become myself. I can become who I was meant to be. So it's not that he didn't try to solve or search for those things, but he did, in fact, see that still in light of God. And that's where we find, again, this root of kind of putting ourselves first versus understanding that we're a new creature made in God. We're a new creation 
Matter of fact, here's how Scripture describes it. This is in uh, Galatians 3. We're children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And it says, and all who have been united with Christ were baptized. And we put on Christ, right? Like putting on new clothes. We put on Christ like a new nature, like, like a new cloak, as some of the versions say. And it says, when this happens, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, right? Like he, he says it strips away the socioeconomic classes. It strips away your, your worth as an identity that people put on men versus women and things like that. It didn't strip away the biology. It just stripped away the, the cultural ideals of all these things for slave or free. It said, now we're one in Christ because we've been created anew. And now that you belong to Christ, you are children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And now God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Keep going. Next verse. Uh, this is in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, since we believe that Christ died for us, we also believe that we have to die to our old life. That there's, there's a sacrificial death. Again, taking us off the top of the list and putting him back on. He died for everyone so that we could receive the new life that no longer we no longer live for themselves. We no longer live for ourselves. Instead, we live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. Oh, at one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. What an encouragement to the church. Hey guys, we were just like everybody else, but how differently we know him now. Why? Because it means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life's gone and the new life has begun. The old way of getting worth and value is gone. We now get that from him. The old way of categorizing ourselves, right? The prejudice and all that, like that's all gone. We now get that from him. The new way of expressing ourselves and seeing ourselves individually, we now get that from him. Does that make sense? Like that's, this is where scripture says it all comes back to putting him first. And oh, how many dysfunctional relationships could be healed if we would actually surrender and... and that identity sin, that self-worth sin that we are often just so easily entrapped by and entangled by. The second category we call self-indulgence, and I'm gonna there's lots of ways that self-indulgence can go, but I'm going to specifically talk about self-indulgence from the standpoint of sin, okay? Self-indulgence from the standpoint of sexual sin. Now, what you'll notice about this list is, again, this list, everything on this list will have biblical conflict to it. It's going to have biblical conflict to it. You're not going to be able to justify any of these things using the Word of God. Now, you'll also notice that I put a little asterisk here because for the most part, you will find that all of these things are now culturally accepted and you have cultural approval with the exception of this. Yet... Everybody with me? I'm not sure I yeah, that's right, Siri. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it, we, we have to know, right? We have to know that, that this, this is not the case right now, but guys, there's other places in this world, there's other tribes, there's other nations, there's other countries where this stuff is far more accepted than it is here, more approved, right? I mean, there's a TED Talk that, that, that went around about two, two years ago of somebody trying to convince us that pedophilia was just a natural sexual orientation that was unchangeable. You can't change it. And so we just need to learn to understand it and accept it. So don't, don't, I'm not telling you this is coming, but I'm just telling you as everything has gone, there will always be sort of a push to cultural approval and cultural acceptance in these areas of sexual sin. 
Let's go, I have to break them up. I can't go deep on, on any one of them, but let's break it up into categories just to, just to kind of walk through, again, the root of sexual sin and how we see it playing out in all of these things. Here's a great verse. I'd love all the young people in the room to memorize this. This is from the Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 4. This says, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until the time is right. It's interesting that this is a bride or you know, an engaged bride talking to uh, daughters of Jerusalem, talking to women. We usually think the sex drive more driven for men. And again, Song of Solomon is filled with lots of descriptive language about elks and antelopes and hills and valleys and fruits of the tree. All right, just go read it on your own, all right? Um, but it's interesting that the, the heart of this was that, listen, God made all of this beautiful. And that's really what Song of Solomon is. It's a beautiful testimony to the passion and sexuality of, of intimacy in a relationship. And she said, it's so beautiful. But she said, don't, don't awaken that. You know, don't, don't, don't go after this until the time is right. There, there's, there's something beautiful about this, but there's something that can also happen when we put this first. And so that's what you see oftentimes right here, uh, just the first section, lust, pornography or porn, uh, and premarital sex, right? Lust is desire, and, and people view that, it can often be mistaken for passion, but lust is all self-driven. It's all about self-gratification. It's all about the appetite that you have, that you desire to have, have done, which is why lust so oftentimes, you know, moves into porn and pornography because it's driven by this idea to self-gratify and self-indulge in someone's life. So even in marriage, lust can be a problem in marriage because it's not about connection and intimacy and emotional connectedness and the true know and being known like we talked about in intimacy. It's, it's all about just you. It's all about you getting your needs met and what you're, that person is doing for you. And pornography is a huge problem. I'll give you a few stats um, the average age of viewing pornography in terms of children is 11 years old, as early as 11. 93% of boys and 67% of girls uh, will engage with pornography at some point before they're 18 years old. Accessibility is the primary problem, and it's not because here, this I've done some studies on it, it's not because Instagram and TikTok and some of these other things don't have some uh, filters and things based on what can or cannot be viewed. The problem is accessibility. The problem is any one of these very safe YouTube, very open sort of uh, forums have links that are one or two clicks away from going directly into pornography. Everybody with me? Like that's the, that's the actual problem is the accessibility of it, which is why it's so rampant and why we have to pay attention to it. Sex before marriage isn't even questioned, obviously, in our culture. It's expected. That's, that's where we've come, as far as we've come in terms of sex before marriage, premarital sex. Uh, the idea that you wouldn't engage in sex before marriage is so outdated and so oppressive to most people in their mind, they can't even fathom it. And it's not only, I mean, obviously, we know it's champion in our culture. I mean, one example I have is uh, Friends. You know the show Friends? right? Friends, uh, the six uh, individuals. Well, over the 10-year period of time in the show Friends, there are 87 sexual partners named in a 10-year period of time in that show that every one of you has seen, right? Like, I, I mean, well, I, I would bet. 
That, that just goes to show, like, it's so, it's, again, part of this going to so normative. Why? Because all of this is driven by self. All of this is driven by self-indulgence and self-gratification, whether it's lust or pornography or, listen, premarital sex is not seen the way God sees it. Like, nobody's viewing it that way. Premarital sex is just two people self-gratifying themselves with each other. That's what they see sex as. It's just two consensual, you know, teenagers or adults just meeting their own needs and desires. Let's go to the passage I read the first week, and I'm a, I know I read a portion of it the first week, but I'm going to read all of it this week. Uh, this is in 1 Corinthians 6. Again, this is Paul talking to the church about sexual sin, and he goes on to say that you say, he's talking to the people in their areas, he says, you say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm, I'm not allowed to do everything, I, I must not become a slave to anything. Like, even though I'm permitted, it doesn't mean it's beneficial, right? It says, you say that food was made for stomach and the stomach for food. You see this as a transaction. You see this as like tit for tat. You know, the food goes in the stomach, the stomach accepts the food. That's all it is. And hey, this is true, <laughs> though someday God's going to do away with both of those things. Okay, no more food, no more stomach. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. Like, this is the argument. He's like, you can't say that. Why? Because you were made for the Lord. Your body was made for him. Your body was made, and the Lord cares about your bodies. And then I, I, didn't, I didn't read this part the last time, but this is the example he was given. He's like, don't you realize that, that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? And guys, this was happening in the temple. Okay, not, not the Christian temple, but like their religious pagan temple, this was what they did. It was a religious practice. He said, never. Should that happen? Never. Why? Because you don't realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one in body with her. For the scriptures say the two are united into one. This is exactly the literal meaning of that scripture. The person who's joined the Lord, though, is one in him with spirit, or one spirit with him. There's a oneness that like we talked about last week that, that does exist. He says, that's why you got to be careful about this. Run from sexual sin. <laughs> what King James or NIV is like, flee. That's a great word, right? Flee from sexual sin. Like, run away. Stop, drop, and roll. Everybody with me? Right? No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. We bear the marks and the scars and the damage of this sin on our body. Don't you realize your body is the temple of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, who lives in you and was given for you by God? You don't belong to yourself. It isn't just about you and your needs and your desires. It says, no, God, brought, no, no, God bought you with a high price and you must honor God with your bodies. You must honor God with your body. Go back to the, to the next part of the list there, and we'll talk through this pretty quickly. One of, the, one of the problems with the abortion conversation is that most people engage it you know, on the surface level, and they start arguing about uh, value of life versus uh, you know, re reproductive rights and health care choices and, and things like that. And, and, and here's what we oftentimes just skip right past and skip over. The need for abortion or the, the, the reason abortion exists is because of sexual sin. Everybody with me? 
Like the reason for abortion is because of sexual sin. Without sexual sin, there aren't any unplanned pregnancies. Or, well, in, in marriages, they call them, you were a gift from God, you know? You were a surprise. You know, like there's other words for it in marriage. But here's where all of a sudden our culture, because of this nature of self-indulgence and self-gratification to put ourselves at the top of the list, is that now we're in a predicament, is that every one of us feels that we have the right, the, the expressive individualism to live out our sexual nature however we want, but we also, in order to do that, we have to eradicate the consequences of that. Thus, abortion really is rooted in sexual sin. And, then, and a lot of times you'll talk to people in Christian circles who are pro-choice or, or whatever they want to call that. And, and here's the reality. A lot of times when you really get down to the nitty-gritty, they're not necessarily pro-abortion. They're not necessarily, they're not looking at you and saying, yeah, let's murder all the children, you know. They're not, they're not necessarily for that. But here's the reality. They want their cake and they don't want to get fat, right? Everybody, that's a horrible example, but you with me, right? Like they, they, they want to have their sexual freedom and individualism and their anti-consequences, which is why the abortion conversation happens. Now, listen, we, we, know we partner with Love Life here in Charlotte, and we go down to the, to the we're doing it in a few weeks, we go down to the, um, to the abortion clinic, and we pray. We join with other churches and other Christians, and we pray, and we want to be a house of refuge for people who do find themselves in unplanned pregnancies so that we can, as a church, assist them and help them you know, choose life. But just remember, we're, you don't go right to the argument. You know, don't, go, don't get sucked in and go right to the argument of reproductive rights. This is a bigger issue than that. It stems from us putting ourselves first. It's a sexual sin issue. I, sh- I don't think I ha- have to go through adultery and and prostitution. I think we all kind of see that. But again, just kind of bringing that out, like adultery and prostitution are one of these things that find cultural acceptance if you have a good enough reason. Like if you have a good enough reason, we have cultural approval for this because, well, again, when we're at the top of the list, our reason only needs to be that, well, my spouse isn't satisfying that. You know, my, my spouse isn't meeting those needs. So I have to go elsewhere. Sometimes we're cocky enough to be like, it's almost their fault that I had to go elsewhere. It's almost their fault, really, that I had to, uh, you know, uh, uh, be unfaithful or, or, do, or pay for this one-night stand or do whatever. Like, it's so messed up. But why? Because sexual sin and sexual is all about self-indulgence and self-gratification. It's because we're the most important thing in that equation. And yet, you guys know this, with all sexual sin, <laughs> we, it is never just you that's affected, right? It's never just you that's affected. Affairs and adultery and prostitution, you think it's only about you, but it is never just you that's affected by sexual sin. Sexual fluidity is kind of the broad term of kind of the LGBTQ movement, and it's the homosexuality, pansexuality, bisexuality, like it's, it's, it's what covers all of those things, the sexual orientation and things that, that are, uh, you know, is so rampant in our current culture. Um, let's go ahead and go, and we're going to read Romans 1 together today. So this is going to be our, our follow along. If you don't mind, go to Romans 1. I've had lots of conversations with people um, about this topic, and 
oftentimes we'll get into, you know, we can get debates about what did the Bible mean when it wrote this word and what did this thing and what does God really say about this and that. And, you know, again, the biblical conflict is clear. So I want you to read it for yourself. Okay, I'm not putting it on the screen. Pull your Bible out. Get your, get your phone app out. You can grab one in the lobby if you haven't seen this for yourself. This is Romans 1. We're going to start in verse 27. He's talking about God's view and how, what happened with people who didn't know God. And he says, yes, they knew God, but they didn't worship him as God. And they didn't give him thanks. So they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people or birds or animals or reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result of the shameful things their hearts desired, as a result, they did violent, degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. This is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Again, we bear the scars of sexual sin. Verse 28 since they thought it was foolish to acknowledge God. He abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Now, I want you to understand that, that when we talk about, and you'll have to go back, I can't dive too deep into this, when we talk about you know, homosexuality and bisexuals and all that kind of thing, like you'll have to go back to where we've done some deep dives, but understand that the, the start or the heart of this for me begins with compassion. It begins with compassion because I understand and I have huge compassion for anyone who's struggling with sexual orientation or, or struggling with gender identity or sexual fluidity. Like I have huge, huge heart of compassion for them. Pastor Mike and I were just headed to Texas this week and on Tuesday night, it was Valentine's Day night, we're, we're headed out to, to Texas. We're flying from, out of Charlotte and um, we noticed as soon as we were on board, the, the, the flight attendant who was sitting beside us in our exit row, um, he was clearly wanting to be a woman. He was clearly representing himself as a woman. There, you know, the eyelashes and the makeup and the lipstick and the nails. And I mean, it was very clear that there was a conflict uh, going on. And, and so Mike and I, you know, you know, I referenced the fact that I was like, I felt like there, the one thing that I noticed as a distinction was that he was required to wear the male uniform. You know, American Airlines have required him to wear the male uniform. And I started asking questions like, that's interesting because it's very clear this person is confused. It's very clear there's, there's an identity, you know, issue going on here. But understand that when I see someone like that or when you see someone like that, listen, your first instinct can't be discussed. It, it just can't. Your first instinct can't be how wrong they are. Because that's not what Christ himself did. When Christ saw the crowd, when he looked across the crowd and he saw them helpless like sheep without a shepherd, he saw them harassed and helpless, he saw them desperate and destitute, he was filled with, what's the word? Compassion. 
So just understand, that's, that is the heart behind even bringing this up today, is that I understand the mess that this is in our culture, and I understand how it, it bleeds with over with the self-worth and identity, and it bleeds into the sexual orientation and the idea. So I understand how messy it can be, and I understand for you, it's very personal, right? Because it's a sibling, you know, it's, it's a kid, it's, a, it's your best friend. It might be the best person you know in this life. So you're caught in the position of not even knowing what to do because there's a biblical conflict there that you can choose to ignore in order to have cultural approval. But I, I just want you to hear me. Like, and I've had conversations, and you listen, you can take me to lunch and try to win me to your side, and we'll have lots of conversation about it. No problem at all. Like, I'm wide open. I love talking with people about this. But the reality is I made, I made a decision a long time ago that I was not going to be at odds with the Word of God, period. And as much as I know it's messy and as much as I know it's, it's, it's hard and as much as I know it's personal and as much as I want to walk through the process with somebody of, of seeking, truly seeking God and walking through the mess that that will be, I can't change what the Word of God says. There's a biblical conflict there because of sexual indulgence, sexual sin is self-indulgence and self-gratification. And I want that same thing for you. I don't, I, I, I know that many of you just don't like the mess. But if we want to love people well, if we want to have compassion, look, just because their sexual sin looks different than yours doesn't mean that it's any worse. Just because their sexual sin looks different than yours doesn't mean that you aren't still broken and needing of a Savior, and needing the redemption of God. It's a reality. But don't try to ignore the Word of God on this. Do not go to odds with God. Don't do it. Understand it, where the sexual sin, why it's the root of this problem, and do your best to love those walking through it. Obviously, I think this is a little more of an obvious answer to this, but you know, I, I kind of set you up for this, but pursuing God's ideals and instructions, well, what does that tend to look like? Well, you're going to notice that it comes with biblical approval, right? It's going to come with biblical reason and biblical approval of why to, you are called to live this way and why God is first in your life and why you choose the things you choose, because that's what he wants for you. But you also need to be aware that it might also come with cultural conflict, and the more hostile a culture becomes, the more hostile that conflict might become. But don't ever settle for cultural approval just to ignore the biblical conflict and try to move on as smoothly as possible. That is not what Jesus would do. That is not being Jesus to anyone. All of this is rooted with who's at the top of the list. Who's the thing we seek and pursue above all things? We sang the song today, there's nothing better than you. Oh, there's nothing better than you. Do you mean it? Do you mean it? Oh, because how easy it is for us to trade the truth of God for a lie. Oh, it's so much easier than we'd like to admit it. It's so much easier to trade the truth of God for a culturally approved lie that doesn't seem to hurt anybody. 
That's not pursuing him. That is not pursuing him above all things. Let me give you these passages as we close out. This is Paul in the church in Ephesus. We will no longer be immature like children and tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to speak the truth in love. Growing in every way more and more like Christ. Why? Because he's at the top of the list. That's who we're seeking above all else. We want to grow every more. Who is the head of the body? The church. That's how we respond to this. That's how we live in the midst of what we know is so easily done, the self-worth and the self-indulgence. We're all guilty of it to some degree or another. So what do we do? This goes back to the James. We opened up with James 4. What do we do? Well, we humble ourselves before God. You guys know what humble yourselves means? It means take yourself off the top of the list and pull yourself down and put him back in his rightful place. Humble yourself before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Keeps going. He says, come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, as you purify your hearts. Your loyalty is divided between God and the world. And guys, I mean, the, re the reason James is saying this to the church is the same reason I felt the need to preach and teach it. Is because I do not want you guys to be at odds with God and to be at odds with his word just because we live in a culture that says this is fine, this is fine, this is approved, this is acceptable, this is great, this is great. It can't happen. It's not taking us where we need to go. It is not helping us in our pursuit of him above all else. And that's my prayer. That's my desire for this series. As we looked at relationships and talked about all this stuff, that, that God, we would just seek you. And that the truth of Scripture, the promise of Scripture is there. That if we really do place you first, that everything else, that the other stuff, the stuff that we do worry about, the happiness, the fulfillment, and the passion, and the, that all of it's going to come. That all of it's going to, everything we really need is going to be provided. Because that's how good he is. Let's pray together this morning. God, I am thankful that even on a difficult topic and subject today, God, that even your word is so clear, crystal clear about what it is you still desire from us, to humble ourselves, to put you first, to not be blown about by lies that so, sound so clever, they sound like the truth, and not to fall back into that place of our old life where we trade the truth of you for a lie, because we can so easily do it. That we, if we are here and we acknowledge you as our Savior, God, we have a new nature. We, have a, we put you on, the nature of Christ, like a cloak. And we live out our lives with you first and foremost, you above all else. God, in the areas of our relationships, I pray that everyone here um, would take the opportunity to just do some self-reflection and to think through where is it that their relationships are maybe struggling because of misdirected pursuits. And we ask your Holy Spirit to guide us in that. In your name, Jesus. Amen.